I love not only preaching through books of the Bible, if you've been here for any amount of time, that's what we do, expository preaching. I also love starting new books. We have been looking at the book of Isaiah, and we'll continue to look uh, come, the, uh, come the fall, sometime in September, as we looked at Isaiah, one of, is the first major prophet, rather than minor prophet, one of the first major prophetic books we've done here at King's Chapel uh, since the inception in two, uh, 1997. And today we start, I believe for the very first time, one of the pastoral epistles that's ever been preached here at King's Chapel. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, we're calling this series The Gospel-Centered Church because young pastor Titus, the book of Titus, who left, was left on the island of Crete, was instructed by the apostle, by the, his mentor, pastor and church planter Paul, uh, to set in order things in the church uh, while he, when he, after he left, while the, both of them, both T- Titus and Paul, were on the island of Crete together. Important things that he needed to do, Titus was instructed to do, is to appoint leaders in the church. Uh, and, uh, elders and pastors of the church. Also to instruct the congregation uh, on the island of Crete, the churches on the island of Crete, what it means to work to, to, to walk worthy of the gospel, worthy of being called a Christ follower, and then what it means to live on mission as Christ followers in a world in that day, especially in Crete, uh, was jacked up and twisted. It was, it was at a bad reputation. I'm going to read to you, I just want to read to you, put things in context before we continue um, our lesson. So this is Titus on Crete. Paul writes to this young pastor these words. Let me read to you God's word, Titus chapter 1. Verses 1 through, I'll, actually I'll do 5 just to keep things in context. So hear the word of the Lord. Greetings, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I am entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Give you the context of the book of Titus. Titus, one of three what's known as the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus, young men mentored by the Apostle Paul. Titus is on the island of Crete, as I said, in the Mediterranean. It's southeast of Greece, and at the time was under Roman rule. 160 miles long, 35 miles wide, one of the larger islands in the Mediterranean Sea, High mountains, fertile plains, nice, beautiful mountain, uh, birthplace to their Greek god called Zeus, an important trade port as well as many ships throughout the Mediterranean would stop on the island of Crete. Important we understand context before we get into the text of Scripture itself. So we'll spend a little time on that. I want to set the groundwork and the foundation to this book so as we get through it, we'll understand what Paul is saying to Titus, why he's saying it to to him, and then bring in application to our minds, hearts, and hopefully our lives. Um, It's an interesting island, as well known as it is, if you look down in chapter 1, verse 12, 
It says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then verse 13, Paul says that the testimony is true. (laughs) Wouldn't fly well today, right? So both Titus and Timothy are these mentors, these young men who are mentored by Paul and given tasks. We know that Titus is in Crete, Timothy is in Ephesus. The date, we're not quite sure when this letter was written. Let me just give you a little background on that as well. Um, Titus is not mentioned at all in the book of Acts. Acts, as we know, was the missionary journeys of Paul, kind of the itinerary of what Paul was doing. And we get to Acts, we look at the book of Acts, we we actually studied that book together. Um, Titus is not mentioned there. So most scholars, most Bible scholars that are worth their weight uh, in reading their, their material believe that when Paul was in prison, in his first prison uh, in Rome, in Acts 28, you can read about that in Acts 28, that he was released. And we don't, we don't have the record of it, but he was released. There are other uh, people in antiquity, historians, that uh, tell us about this as well, and I don't want to bore you with that. But Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, Acts 28, and yet he was again, we know in 2 Timothy, that he was imprisoned once again, after a couple of years in which he was put to death. So somewhere between Acts 28, his first Roman imprisonment, he's released. Paul is then does what Paul does, preaches the gospel, traveling uh, through Asia Minor, Macedonia, and at some point came to the island of Crete during his first release from prison, preaches the gospel there. Some people think he went as far as Spain on his fourth missionary journey. And during this time in which Paul goes from his first imprisonment to his second imprisonment where he is just... Uh, martyred under Nero, probably late 60s AD, Paul writes these letters. So he takes Timothy and Titus with him. He drops off Timothy, uh, and if you read Timothy, you know he's writing to the church, the Ephesian church. He drops off Timothy in Ephesian, at the Ephesian church, and he says, you know, work here. You stay here, Timothy. I'm taking Titus. We're going to Crete. And then after he leaves Crete, he leaves Titus there, Timothy and Ephesus, Titus, and Crete. And then Paul writes these letters to these two young men that he's loved and he'd mentored and he cared for. They love him, he loves them. And he writes these letters to Timothy while you're in, uh, in the Ephesian church and to, to Titus, who is now in Crete between his Rosen, uh, Roman imprisonment. So sometime 63, 65 AD, he's martyred in the late 60s. So that kind of gives you some context of what's going on. So obviously the Apostle Paul and Titus are doing evangelism. And they're they're preaching the gospel on this island, 160 miles, 35 miles wide. And they're preaching the gospel and and people are coming to faith in Christ. It's interesting if you read Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, some 25, 30 years earlier than this, there were some Cretans, there were some people from the island of Crete that were there. Who, who received the Holy Spirit, who understood the gospel. We don't, we don't know what, what happened. Did they go back to the island? Was there never a church established? But sometime during, you know, 30, 25 years later, Paul's on this island. He's with Titus, and they're evangelizing. People are coming to faith, and a church is being formed. And that's what we have here in this little letter. And what's so wonderful about this book I really believe you're going to love the study in the book of Titus. What's so wonderful about this little book is that it is so packed with theology, understanding who God is, with practicality, and how the gospel is meant to not only save us, but to transform 
every aspect of our lives. We're a gospel-centered church, so I'm excited about the book of Titus. It, it speaks about how the gospel develops leadership, how the gospel strengthens the life of the, of the church together, how the gospel then moves us to live on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to the world. Simply put, the book of Titus is all about how the gospel impacts leadership, the family of God, the community of God, and our mission to the world. And the island of Crete, we know, and we'll learn more as the weeks go on, was a rough place, was a very broken, sinful, rebellious island. What you don't find in this letter is Paul telling Titus, do the best you can. If things get really bad, bail. Get on a boat, get out of there. Sometimes I think we're looking at the world around us, and some of it's pretty scary. Let's not lose focus. In, in, in the moral decline, let's, not, let, let's recognize that we are here not by accident, but we, the children of God, are here with the purpose to declare the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people have always been given the great privilege and responsibility to be light and salt of the world. To be a witness to the gospel through love, through generosity, through gospel character, gospel generosity and good deeds. To proclaim the truth about Jesus, his atoning work on the cross, his substitutionary death who died in our place and rose three days later for our justification. This little book, as we unpack it week after week for probably at least two months, this little book is packed with how the gospel the centrality of the gospel leads a life into practical living. How gospel doctrine demonstrates itself with doc- gospel devotion. How, how gospel doctrine demonstrates itself in gospel devotion. How gospel truth is lived out in a gospel-lived life. Great book. Paul understood that what we understand about the gospel, how what we understand about the love and the grace and mercy of God, and as we embrace that, that sound understanding of gospel truth, will produce a life of love and good deeds. In fact, the word good deeds is mentioned four times in this three-chapter book. So a simple outline, chapter one. Chapter one deals with gospel leaders, their character, their responsibility, chapter one. Chapter two, gospel community, the, the congregation, God's people, how it informs and forms and how we are to live out the gospel. Gospel one, gospel leaders, gospel two, the gospel informs and forms the congregation. Now, in chapter three, when we get there, we'll see how the gospel moves us into mission. How are we gospel-filled people in love of Christ and love of people are to live our lives out on the mission field, which is everywhere. That's kind of an outline. One last thing. We'll get into the text. Very important, too. Titus, with this gospel truth before us, in the backdrop throughout the entire book, we're going to see that Titus is also about confronting false teaching. Titus, over and over in the book, wants to deal with, uh, Paul all over this book writes to Titus about false teaching. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, whenever the gospel is moving forward, whenever the gospel is being preached and Jesus is being treasured, loved, and forgiving sinners, 
the enemy wants to come in and teach false doctrine. Here we see the Judaizers, just like we saw in Galatian, and anybody else who wants to come and say that God saves us by grace and by works. And that we have to work our way and somehow, by have faith in God, and we work our way and somehow keep the law. Here it is, circumcision. We keep the law, and somehow God then will look down and say, you know what, you're trying really hard. Good job. I think I will rescue you, redeem you, save you, and, and, and um, uh, you know, save you. And Paul said, no, that's not how it works. In fact, they were twisting what we call justification by faith alone. And we'll see that throughout this book, how the leadership in the church needs to be gospel-centered, how the congregation needs to be gospel-centered, how our mission needs to be gospel-centered, all the while keeping watch over our doctrine, over the truth of the gospel. How is that not applicable today? 2,000 years ago, it's exactly what we need to hear today, right? Can I get an Amen. All right, thank you. Three things. One, the apostle, the apostle Paul's assessment. Two, the apostle's assignment, which is going to go through four verses. And three, the apostle's affection, that is toward Timothy. Uh, excuse me, Titus. Hope I don't get that confused too much, right? I'll really confuse you. Anyway, look with me, chapter one, verse one. Paul begins his greetings. As many do in the, in, the, in, the old, in, the, in the Bible times, right? We write a letter, we put down, dear so-and-so. We write to the person when writing, and then you go to the bottom of the letter and you sign your name. Not in antiquity. That didn't work, didn't work that way. In antiquity, back in that day, the sender puts his name first. The subjects and a short salutation uh, is given as someone is writing someone in Paul's day. And Paul, this, this church planter, assesses himself and talks about himself not as a pastor, not as a church planter, and not even as an apostle. He gets to that second, but he calls himself, look what he says, a servant. A servant. That word actually, doulos, means a slave. He's a slave. That's his first assessment. So you meet somebody, hey, uh, my name is Lou, Uh, I'm a slave. That's what Paul's saying, I'm a slave. Dula, slave. I I, I don't have any rights, I leave them to someone else. I I don't have any, all my personal privileges are subjugated and subjected to the master. I am bound and I'm a slave to another. I have no agenda, I have his agenda. I have no self glory, I'm seeking his glory. That's how Paul starts his letter. I'm a slave. And there's really no other way to really correctly, I think, Paul's using a term that was negative and he twists it and kind of used it for, 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 for his humility and, and in a positive way. But there's really no other way to, to clearly show forth the total claim God has on the lives of his children that he redeemed and he rescued. And I know it's a battle. It's a battle every day, right? I mean, just to, to lay down our self-glory, to, 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 to say, no, I'm, I'm bound to somebody else. I belong to somebody else. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians that we, were, we are not our own. Remember the verse? We, we've been bought with a price. We belong to God. We are slaves of Christ. And again, he takes this negative term and he uses it in a submissive and a humble way. And what's interesting about this opening in this uh, letter is Paul says he's a slave of God. If you, if you look at the other epistles he wrote, he talks about being a slave of Christ. But here and only here in Titus, he talks about being a slave of God. And what I think he's doing is drawing on the Old Testament allusions or, or, or writings where David, King David, the beloved king of Israel, Moses, 
uh, is called a slave of God. Other prophets in the Old Testament are called the, the slave of God. They were given this special position, received special authority and revelation from God. And these Old Testament prophets and, and kings and, and Moses, the, the lawgiver, are called a slave of God. Even Joshua is called a slave of God. And I think what he's doing is he's letting the people know on Crete and even those Judaizers who would question his authority, he's like, no, I'm in line with and I have that same privilege of being a slave of God, a humble slave of God, as David, as Moses, as Joshua, as other prophets. I'm putting it right out there. And now, if you know anything about slavery, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. In the Old Testament, you were, you as a person, if you were enslaved, you'd be set free in the year. Jubilee, there's a whole bunch of laws around slavery. We'll get into it another day. It's not what we think it is. It's a little bit different back then. But anyway, you as a slave, if your master cared for you and loved for you and provided for you, you as a slave could come to him and ask the owner to be his permanent slave. That you want to serve him all the days of your life. You would voluntarily submit yourself to that slave owner in the Bible. Paul takes these words by his own volition, willingly self-committed to the permanent service of the Lord. And we know from other scriptures that it was a joyful service. It was a loyal service bound to the God of his salvation. Let me remind you, the apostle Paul, the famous Jewish Pharisee, was at one point a slave to sin and to destruction. Do you remember? He went around killing people. He went around destroying people. He, he hated Christ. He hated Christ's followers. He cast his vote to persecute them and put them in prison and to kill them. And then one day, Paul's on the road to, the, to, to Damascus with a letter to persecute believers. And the Lord Jesus Christ shows up Knocks him off his horse. Everything changes. He goes from slavery to sin and Satan. He's broken and now he becomes a joyful servant of God. So if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, you need to heed the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be heavyweight champion of the world or a socialite with a long string of pearls, you're gonna serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. You're not serving yourself. The dark or the light, Christ or the enemy. Paul said to himself in Romans 6, thanks be to God that we were once slaves of sin, we've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which I've committed, and we've been set free from sin because we become slaves of righteousness. Christ is righteous. Paul talks of his humble beginnings as a slave to God. And then notice what he says next. He's an apostle. A slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And through, Paul understood that this letter he's writing to Titus and sending to Crete is not only going to be read by Titus in his study. Imagine getting a letter from the apostle Paul written with your name. I want that letter. But Titus is going to open that letter and he's going to circulate it in the churches that have been established in this island. And that many of the churches are going to read this letter as we are today. And he wants those people who are reading it 
to know clear, straight up, right up front, what Paul's credentials were. And who is it that provided those credentials to him? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The authority of Paul comes directly through who sent by the apostle, uh, excuse me, the Lord Jesus Christ, sends Paul's into ministry. You see, on the road to Damascus, not only was Paul humbled and converted, but Paul then was called of God into the apostolic ministry. Many times in the, in the New Testament, we have to look at it today, uh, Paul reminds his readers that he has learned the gospel. He's been called into ministry of the gospel directly from the risen and ascended Christ. When Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus, he's saying that God, the Son, have invested in me the authority of Christ. I'm an ambassador. I'm a messenger. I've been given special authority and powers to speak for Christ on behalf of Christ to the people of God. Notice, Paul doesn't say, I'm really smart. And he was. He was trained by one of the most famous rabbis. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm really smart. I'm an educated man. I come from the kingly line of Benjamin, which he does. My past achievements, all the things that I've done, we learned in Philippians 3 that he counts them as dung, right? As loss. That his salvation and his apostolic calling is a matter of grace and grace alone. Just like the other three apostles. 11 apostles. Now the word apostle, let's just talk about this for a minute. Two Greek words, comes from two Greek words. Apostolos, apostolos. Apa, which means from. Stelos means to send. To send from. Okay, that's what apostle means. Someone who is sent from someone with their authority. An ambassador, a power of attorney. And these 11 men, and now Paul's included in this apostolic band of people, were given special revelation. They were men that were chosen and called and commissioned by Christ himself to teach God's people. We see that in Luke 6, Mark, Luke 6, Mark 3. And these apostles had this unique authority under the authority of Christ. And family, they don't exist today. Okay? Capital A, apostles with that authority, does not exist today. So, as I said before, if someone comes to you and says, I'm an apostle of God with that that authority, do like Forrest Gump and run. (laughs) Don't listen to them. They don't, there's no longer that that special given authority to write scripture, to, to, to teach God's people, is over. Now, we can argue about capital A, apostle with that authority, and a little a, which is really church planters, which people, you know, well, being sent out by a local congregation under their authority, and I'm planting churches. I get that. I don't use that term because I think it's too confusing. We know that when Judas died, the replacement was someone that was with us, ministered with us, witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Unless you're 2,000 years old and you can say, I was there, you're, you're, you're not an apostle, right? Don't have that kind of authority. But, but, this is very important, but, what we have today is the authority that was left to us by Christ through his apostles because we have the word of God. We are to sit under, we are to not sit over, we are to sit under the authority of God's apostolic written word because it is, and it will stand and does stand in the authority of Christ. 
And Christ gave his apostles, who gave us his word, that authority. And the instructions that Titus is saying to us here is not just good, nice words in a book. The apostolic authority that Paul had now is given to Titus that has been written down for us is under Christ's authority. It's not up for debate. It's not, he's writing it to teach us, to show us what and how the church is to function, what it means to put in order the church. It's not up for debate. It's not a one man, one vote. Now, there are some gray areas. I get that. Some methods of ministry. I get that. But there are clear principles of Scripture we're going to examine and implement. And, and there's some clear and precise instructions given to the church that we are to humbly submit to regardless of the culture. Titus was Paul's man who was under Paul's apostolic authority to preach, to teach, and to organize the church. And the churches in Crete, the churches in Glenmont, to humbly submit to what God is saying through his word, setting things in order. Now, just quickly before we go to the next, there, there are some traditions that teach that the apostolic authority is one that has been uh, handed down, successionism, handed down from one authority to the next authority to the next authority to the next authority, that this apostolic authority has been passed down. That is not what we're saying. The apostolic authority ended with the Scripture. Nobody's writing Scripture anymore. It's not an ongoing thing. Titus, under the authority of the apostle, wrote the Scriptures, and therefore the apostolic authority ends with this letter. This is the authority, the scripture, the word of God. So we have the assessment. He's a humble slave. He's been called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ himself. Number two, the salutation continues. Now, verses one through four, just so you know, is one, one sentence in the Greek. It's packed with theological truth. Now, first thing we'll see in, in, in verse 1b is Paul describing his life's purpose, really. Look what it says. Servant. Apostle for, see that for, the sake of the faith of God's elect. I'm a slave to God. I humbly submit to my Savior, my God, my great, awesome, loving God. And yet I've been called with authority as an apostle of Christ for the purpose of, for the sake of, the saving faith of the elect. That's what it says. Now, some of you may hear the word elect and the back of your hair stands up a little bit. Like, are we going there? Yes. Because that's where Paul goes, right? Now, it's unfortunate because the elect or the chosen of God is, is a beautiful biblical word, concept. It's a comforting doctrine taught throughout the scripture. Going way back to Abraham, who is called by God in a pagan land and called out of that land to go to a place where God says, I will show you. God then comes and makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him this this piece of land promising him in this covenant a large lineage, a, 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 a people, and that God himself, the Lord himself, will come from his offspring and will bless the whole world. Read Genesis 12, 15, 17. God then chose the nation of Israel out of all the nations of the earth, not because anything they, were, they did or how great they were, but because God chose them. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 7. God says, it was not because you were more in number that I chose you. Out of all the people, I set my love on you and chose you. Actually, you were the fewest of the people. 
but it's because the Lord, Yahweh, loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The sovereign choice of God. The New Testament picks up the same theme of election and being chosen. Jesus made it clear in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That you would go and you would bear fruit, your fruit would abide. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him, God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So when we talk about this this gift of salvation, I look at it as there's three options. One, the enemy, the devil, chooses. If that's the case, we're all doomed, right? You're not choosing anybody for redemption, anybody for salvation. Number two, maybe, maybe you think that, you know what, I made the choice. I choose. Well, the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. Imagine walking up to a dead person and and, and saying you need to respond and move and get out of the way. Dead people don't make choices. Dead people don't make choices. If we were to choose, I know in my own life, my own testimony, until the Lord opened my eyes, I chose, I chose sin every time and rebellion every time. Or that God in love in mercy comes into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a life of humility, of love. He was tempted yet did not sin. He would go to the cross. He, he would substitute himself in our place for our sins. He would rise again from the dead and offer salvation as a gift to anyone who would come. That's our job, to preach the gospel to everyone. But God knows if left to our own rebellious ways, we would choose not God each and every time. So he invites us, but he also pursues us. Pursues us vigilantly, mercifully, compassionately, lovingly, and continually. And you say, well, well I, I can't grasp all that. Well, welcome to the club. There's a mystery behind it all. I get that. Whether it's the choice of, of, of Israel, whether it's the choice of Abraham, whether it's the choice of the church, it's still very much a part of what God is doing. And some people will ask, and I'm sure you may be here, why evangelize? Why, why does Paul live on mission? Why is Paul so excited about preaching the gospel if God already knows? Actually, that's the wrong question to ask. Paul, it was the opposite effect. Paul knew that God was calling people out of darkness into the light. And guess what Paul wanted to do? He wanted to be that guy. He wanted to be the one that God would use to love people, to care for people, to share the gospel with me. I know you're saving people because you're sovereign and you are good and you can open up hearts of dead people. I want to be used of you, God. I, I love you. I love people. Just use me for your glory. Use me for your honor. It, it is the sovereignty of God that should move us into mission. That God will awaken those whom he chooses. There's a great little book. I brought it up here with me. I don't usually bring this, but I'm going to today. J.I. Packer. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. J.I. Packer. I have a copy if you want to borrow it. It just shows how God's sovereignty is, fuels mission. When you pray for someone to come to know Christ, what are you doing? You say, Lord, you have all authority and power. Open their heart to see the beauty and the glory and the forgiveness of Christ. It brings us to the place of love and dependency upon God. I've said this before. I'll say it to the day I die. You have to have a category in your brain that says God is sovereign over the earth. 
reigns and rules supreme. And yet man is responsible in their lives. Well, how, how does that work? They asked Charles Spurgeon, this is what he said. God saves man by grace alone. And if men perish, women perish, they perish justly by their own faith. Fault, excuse me. How, says someone, how do you reconcile these doctrines of sovereignty and, and, and choice? He says, my dear brothers, I never reconcile friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they're both in God's word. I shall not attempt to reconcile them. Paul says, listen, I am being called into ministry through the work of the Spirit, through the work of, of Christ, to preach the gospel. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God and the importance of sharing the gospel with everyone. Everyone. Everyone and anyone. Do you understand that? I, I want you to see that this morning. And, and if we understand that, we can rest in the sovereignty of God and just love people. Everybody. It's not really that hard. Leave the salvation work of the Spirit to the Spirit. You just love people. Share the gospel with people. Saving faith, now sanctifying truth. So that, look what he writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Here, here's the first glimpse of what we'll see throughout this book of Titus, that the word of God and the gospel of God now starts permeating and transforming the hearts and lives of God's people, which accords with godliness. Their, their knowledge of truth, which accords to godliness, means it shows forth, it promotes, it leads a life into godliness. See, false teachers teach false doctrine, and you will, if you follow that, lead to false living. The conduct will not be correct and appropriate according to the gospel. Tim Chester in his commentary writes this. He says, as our faith grows in knowledge, this knowledge of the gospel, so we will grow in godliness. The more we understand what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will love him and live for him, end quote. This is vital to grasp, family. We're going to talk about this for weeks. I'm excited about it. If we want to live in the joy of the gospel, we want to live in the joy of the gospel of our salvation, it's foundational for us to recognize that it's the work of God, not our job. It's the work of God, it's not in our moral performance. Otherwise, we're getting drawn back into this, look at me, I need to work. I need to, I need to really work hard so that God will love me. Remember the famous words from Tim Keller? New York City, religion, that's work-based salvation. I'm, I'm earning my way into a right relation with God. I'm earning my way to God to love me, he says. Gospel, he says, religion operates on this principle. I obey, I do what God wants me to do, and therefore I am accepted by God. That's religion. The gospel operates on this principle. I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ alone, and therefore I obey, end quote. In other words, conduct itself does not make us right with God. Rather, the relationship with God that gospel faith establishes us leads us into a relationship with God. It's very different. Very different. Saving faith opens the heart, frees the will, grants repentance and faith, and leads us into the knowledge of the truth, and we are being transformed by the gospel. That order is very important. Sanctifying life characterized by godliness as we grow more and more in the likeness of Christ. 
And look what else it does. Not only they're sanctifying, uh, excuse me, saving faith, sanctifying truth, but look at the rest of verse 2. It solidifies hope. In hope, he says, of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised, praise God, before the ages began. Notice the, the, the progression. Saving faith, the elect knowledge of the truth, growing in godliness, to the hope of eternal life, because God never lies. Now, remember, hope, hope, hope doesn't mean, like, I hope it doesn't rain today. Biblical hope is, is centered and focused on and, and rooted in the promises of God. What God said, God will do. And, and, and Paul is saying, listen, I, I'm confident of this hope. In fact, he says, God promised it, and God cannot lie. Who's, li- who's the liars here? The Cretans, verse 12. But God can't lie. See what he's doing? In fact, the word, there's a word that he used to use back in that day. Let me see if I got it. Yeah, cretizo comes from the word crete, and it means liar. So they would take, you know, it's sort of like, and I'll say myself because I'm Italian. It's sort of like seeing something and saying, yeah, that's Italians. The cretes, they're liars, but God doesn't lie. And, and the hope, the hope of God, listen, the hope that we have in the word of God, in God himself, listen, is based on the immutable nature and promise of God. It doesn't change. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. God always speaks the truth. His promise of eternal life is yours because he made the promise and he is backing up his word. That should be a source of encouragement and confidence for us before the time began. Before the time began. And look how it's manifested, verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word, see that? Through the preaching which I, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So uncircle that. In, in, in his word means the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. Paul's been entrusted to the proclaiming of this gospel that we just spoke about by the command of God our Savior. And what's amazing is that's the way God works, right? So he, 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 he gives us the means and, and he gives us the, the, the power to preach the gospel. We don't give, I've said this before, I think it was Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think. We don't give advice when we share the good news of the gospel, we don't give advice. We, I I, advice comes by the, by the millions. When we share the good news of the gospel, we give news. Christ came. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ was crucified on a Roman cross, dying for our sins, sheds his blood. Christ rose from the grave. The tomb is empty. That's good news, not good advice. It's a call to faith in Christ. We preach that word. We preach his gospel. Not another self-help, not another gospel. Certainly some may preach the gospel better, but no one can preach a better gospel. Romans 10, everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. How then will they call unless they believe? How they believe unless they never heard? How they have never heard if no one preaches to them? As it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul here is given that authority, authority that we don't have, but, family, we share in that assessment with him that we are slaves of God. 
We belong to him. We've been bought with a price. We share in him his purposes. We are too are being sent into the world by Christ to demonstrate and declare the good news of the gospel. Jesus said, as I send them, I send you into the world. We share in his purpose of proclaiming saving faith, sanctifying truth, solidifying hope as we enter into our world with the good news of the gospel. Lastly, the apostles' affection, verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. What's interesting about this is Titus, again, is not mentioned in the book of Acts. But we know that Paul wrote about Titus both in the letter to the Galatian church and to the church in Corinth. And it makes it clear that Titus was one of Paul's right-hand guys. Younger, but Paul trusted him, Paul loved him. He was part of the team of leaders that Paul had developed. And he refers to Titus on several occasions. Let me tell you a little bit about Titus. Number one, so that you know, he's a Greek. His mother and father are both Greek, unlike Timothy. He was half Greek, half Jew. And Paul says to him in there right here, Titus, my true child. In the Greek, the word my is not here. Uh, they put it in, translators put it in. But what he's saying is Titus, true child. True and genuine child. There's, a, there's an affection in this, in this greetings. Titus was a friend of Paul. Titus was used by Paul. Titus, poor Titus. Titus comes on a scene first in the letter of Galatia, in chapter 2. You can read it some other time. And and Paul is in Jerusalem. He takes Titus with him. Titus, as I mentioned, is 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 a Greek. Mother and father is both a Greek. And some of the people who say, nope, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, uh, say, you know what, we need to circumcise Titus. How they know he's not circumcised, I really don't know, and I can't tell you that, but they know. That's funny. But anyway, and Paul says, no, I'm not doing it, because salvation is by grace alone. And Paul writes to these, these people who would say, and you've got to understand, circumcision is very important. You may not think of it today, but back then is a very important sign of the Old Testament, saints, and the covenant, the outward sign of the covenant God made of the reality of their covenant with God, Right? So he says to the people who say, no, you need to follow the law in order to be saved. He says to them, we did not yield to you, not, we did not submit to you, not even for a second. Why? We're not going to say the law saves. Why? He says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. So the common faith, the gospel is this common faith that is not by works. Paul shows us through Titus, not through the work of the law. But that's common faith is salvation in Christ alone. And what Paul is saying here is this, this Greek boy and I, my true child, is we have this common faith. We, we have this unity, Jew, Gentile, Greek, even Christians as brothers and sisters in the same family. And Paul is basing his, his, his fellowship and his uh, uh, you know, brother and sisterhood Communion with Titus based on what? The gospel. The gospel teaches us that we are not to primarily look at anyone through racial lines. Okay? Not primarily look through culture, ethnicity, look through, through some economics or, 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 or academic lines. The gospel teaches us that we see everyone as brothers and sisters together in unity with Christ in the gospel. That's the center. That's the focus. That brings us into family. 
Titus, the true child in the faith. He says to him, grace and peace from God our Father. Titus, Titus was a man of leadership. Now, I don't have time to get into this. Maybe we'll get into it next week. But Titus was given some difficult tasks. Some commentators call him the, the utility guy or the, uh, what was the other word they use? Hold on, I got it written down. They call him the um, uh, troubleshooter. Paul sent him to Corinth to, to, that was in trouble there with a severe letter that was a rebuke. Paul sent them there to gain and to gather funds that were necessary. He sent Titus. Now he's sending Titus to the island of Crete. One commentator says he's a man of unusual tact. He possesses high quality of leadership. So one other commentator says, you know, in a day when many Christian institutions have been marred by financial irresponsibility, lack of integrity, division, threat of false doctrine, Titus serves as a challenging example of a man of character who is consistently available to do God's work, end quote. That's Titus. Paul loved him. And then Paul prays for him as we close. Verse 4 in the end. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Paul uses it all the time. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Grace alone that moves us into the family of God. Peace, this unsurpassing shalom, this wholeness of God. Something the people of God who have been forgiven of their sins enjoy. Hendrickson writes, grace is God's unmerited favor in operation in the heart of a child. It's Christ-centered, pardoning, and, and strengthening love. But peace is the child's consciousness of having been reconciled with God through Christ. Grace is the fountain. Peace is the stream which issues from this fountain. What a great quote. And both, look, they both come from the sources, God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here's something that we want to look at. When you and I come to that place, and the band, you know what, band, come on up. Give me two more minutes, but band, come on up. When you and I come to the place, we, we come to that place, that undeniable place where we're in a right relationship with God. We're, we're, he loves us, we love him, and it's by grace alone. Our sins have been forgiven, not through moral goodness, it's through the cross. Then that peace comes. We're, we're, we're right with God, our sins have been forgiven. This is the peace that God gives when, when, the, when the heart of rebellion and running from God is now is resting in God. Our stubborn wills have been renewed by the gospel, by the, by the power of grace, and we go from enmity with God to, to become children of God. That's the peace that God gives us. But hearts without the gospel, hearts without the gospel, as someone once said, it, is, is a heart that's in rebellion. It's a, it is sin that has uh, been... been it's a heart that's been, I think someone once wrote, uh, an interior dislocation of the heart. When, when, when a heart is not right with God, it's seeking and looking and running after things that wants to somehow bring peace into our lives. But when our hearts are made with God, right with God, God's grace through the removal of sin, the, the penalty of sin through the, his imputation of righteousness, there, there's a forgiveness, there's, there's the grace of God, there's the peace of God. And we stop trying to justify ourselves. But we rest in the grace and the mercy of God. Look what it says here in this last verse. Notice with me. And this we will close. To Titus, my, no, excuse me, verse 3 at the end. I just want to point this out. It says, I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior 
verse 4, grace and peace from what? God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. See what he's doing there? God the Savior, Christ the Savior. He's not only pointing out the deity of Christ, but he's also pointing out that, that God is the one who saves. God is the one who saves. So let me ask you this question. Have you trusted Christ today? Have you trusted Christ today? Have you rested in his work? Have you trusted his atoning salvation, work of salvation? Let me ask you this question too. In the midst of our broken world, are we, the children of God, growing in our godliness, growing in the gospel? Are we, are we then taking what we've learned, what we've grown, and went into mission, declare it to the world? You know, here at King Chapel, we have three core values, EIC. Eternity, gospel redemption, it's the work of Christ, Christ on the cross. That middle one is identity, gospel transformation. It is the work of the gospel. The gospel work of Christ on the cross, the work of the gospel in our lives, and the last part is community, gospel restoration. It's about gathering together and then living on mission. Let, let this letter f- help us to understand the gospel greater, but also propel us into a world that's twisted and jacked up and confused with the truth that God loves them. And he's calling everyone everywhere to turn from being their own saviors and turn to Christ. Let's love them and show them Jesus. Father, thank you for this letter that is going to, I believe, help us, Lord, to see you greater, to see you better, to see your love, to see your grace, to see your mercy. Maybe there's some things in our own lives that we need to get right, we need to get straight. Lord, we do it by grace. We don't do it to try to earn your love. You've shown your love to us in Christ. We do it as a response, a response of love, a response of gratitude. We respond to you. And we want to hear what you have to say. And the things that we need to work out in our lives, we will gladly do that with your power and your strength and your grace. And Lord, help us, please help us. Help us to love people. Help us to be a generous people. Help us to be a caring people. Help us to let the light and the salt of Jesus which just permeate from our lives that we can share the good news of what you're doing through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, again, only for his glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.